Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the City College of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science, including, first of all, congratulations to NASA for successfully landing the InSight probe on the Red Planet. After spending $850 million, we've had a successful landing, the eighth landing from NASA on the Red Planet, and we hope to explore the interior of that planet. And then moving on, we're going to talk about the world not of outer space, but the world of inner space. That is the world of medicine and biology. As we talk about this controversial report, yet to be verified, that a Chinese scientist was successfully able to modify the genes of a fetus and bring it to fruition, meaning that designer children may be just around the corner. So what does it mean? How was it done? What does it mean if we can have tinkering of the genetic heritage of the human race itself. And then we'll answer a few questions that I get by email. There's no way I can answer all the email questions that I get, but some of them I'll try to answer here on Exploration. Well, the top story today is the fact that NASA has deserved congratulations for successfully landing the InSight probe on the Red Planet. There is something called the Mars Jinx. The Mars Jinx very simply states that most probes sent to the red planet fail. In fact, 60%, on average, 60% of the probes sent to the red planet never make it there successfully. But JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and NASA has really broken that record. This is the eighth, the eighth time they've successfully landed a probe on the red planet. And this probe is different from all previous probes. The previous probes basically landed on very boring areas of Mars that are very flat and have no gigantic craters or mountains and have analyzed the nature of water erosion on the surface of these craters and plains, but the probes have never gone to the ice caps of Mars and never looked at what's underneath the ground. That's where the Mars inside probe comes in. The inside probe has very sensitive seismometers to measure Mars quakes. Not earthquakes, but Mars quakes, which is very important for the following reason. Three billion years ago, Mars began to lose its copious quantities of water. Water went three places. A, into outer space. B, it snowed on the polar ice caps. And C, it went underground, seeped into the underground, froze, and became part of the permafrost. Well, if you were an alien species on Mars three million years ago, where would you go? You would go A, into outer space, B, to the polar ice caps, and C, underground, into an underground base. Well, we've been on the surface of Mars, but we've never been to the ice caps, and we've never looked underground. And that's what the Mars Inside Probe plans to do. By listening for echoes, echoes that bounce back and forth inside the red planet, they're able to reconstruct by computer a map of the inside of Mars. Now, the inside of Mars, we think, is going to be quite different from the inside of the Earth. The Earth has a molten core, which is very hot, heated up by radiation, in fact. Uranium, thorium, and other long-lived radioisotopes are responsible for giving us the heat of the center of the Earth, which creates volcanoes and earthquakes. But they, in turn, create currents, currents of magma, currents that cause a magnetic field to be created. And the Earth has a very healthy magnetic field, which shields the Earth from harmful radiation. And that's why we're here today to talk about it. If it wasn't for that fact, humans could not survive on the planet Earth. Well, Mars does not have that. Mars has, all, has a very little magnetic field, hardly a magnetic field to write home about. And that's why it was vulnerable to the solar wind, 
which then blew much of the atmosphere into outer space because Mars did not have this magnetic shield, meaning that the inside of Mars is quite different from the inside of the Earth. Perhaps the inside of Mars is completely frozen over, meaning that there's no movement of magma and electric charge, and that could explain the fact that Mars has almost no magnetic field. So we need to know this. And that's one reason why the Mars probe, one of its missions is to analyze Mars quakes as they bounce off these layers of Mars, giving us echoes, which allow us by computer to reassemble a crude map of the inside of Mars. The Mars inside probe will also look for heat as it moves inside of Mars, which in turn would give us an indication of the magnetic field of Mars, and second, look for any wobblings of the orbit of Mars. And so these are three things that the Mars probe is entrusted to do. Well, some critics have said, why? Why bother to spend $850 million on a probe? Because after all, Mars is nothing but a, a bunch of rocks out there in outer space, no life that we know about, no aliens, no Martians. And why bother to spend billions of dollars putting humans on Mars? Well, I once interviewed Carl Sagan, the late astronomer, on this very program, Exploration, and I asked him that question. Isn't it a waste of money to go to Mars? I mean, after all, there's no food on Mars. Uh, there are no valuable minerals that we can point to. It's very hostile. The atmosphere is only 1% that of the Earth, and it's freezing cold on Mars. And he said the following. He said, well, yeah, all that's correct. But you see, the Earth is in the middle of a cosmic shooting gallery, he said. There are millions of pieces of rock floating in outer space, and one of them might eventually hit the Earth. One rock just six miles across, a little peanut, hit the Earth 65 million years ago and knocked out the dinosaurs. I mean, after all, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. If the dinosaurs had a space program, maybe they might be here to talk about it. But they didn't, and we mammals took over as a consequence. And so what he was saying is that most life forms on Earth eventually go extinct. Let's do a science experiment. Dig right underneath your feet, right now. Dig right underneath your feet, right to the floor, the concrete, right to the uh, center of the Earth, and you'll find all sorts of fossils of dead life forms, extinct life forms. 99.9% or more of all life forms eventually go extinct. Extinction is the norm. You can write the future of any species on Earth by simply closing the chapter and saying it went extinct. However, we're different. We have a large brain. We're able to perhaps change our own future. And that's why some people think we should have an insurance policy on Mars. Now, I asked Sagan, does that mean we're going to bankrupt the Earth to create a gigantic colony on Mars? Not necessarily. A settlement on Mars, an insurance policy, plan B. No one is talking about evacuating the Earth. we got to solve Earth problems as Earthlings on the Earth. We can't escape to Mars hoping to find a solution on Mars. No. We have to solve the problem of biotechnology, designer germs, nuclear proliferation, and global warming as Earthlings on the Earth. But that doesn't mean you can't have a colony on Mars. And the key word there is self-sufficiency. We don't want a settlement on Mars or a colony that's going to be a drain on the planet Earth. No. We want it to be self-sufficient. And how do you do that? First, you can melt the ice. Ice can be purified to give us drinking water. It can be separated to give us oxygen for breathing and hydrogen for rocket fuel. Mars has plenty of ice, but it's frozen. Second, you need food. There's no food on Mars. You would have to bring genetically modified plants and algae to thrive in the carbon dioxide atmosphere of Mars. Power, well, you get power from the sun using solar cells. 
Mining operations will give you the material. It turns out that we can recreate Martian rock on the Earth or something similar to Martian rock on the Earth. And sure enough, you can build brick. You can build brick out of Martian soil, and that would give us the ability to create structures on the red planet. And then by solar satellites, you can beam solar energy down to the polar ice caps, melting the ice caps, so that liquid water flows freely on the surface of Mars once again after a three billion year gap. And that could raise the temperature of Mars by six degrees. Now, why six degrees? That's a tipping point. If you can raise the surface of Mars by six degrees, you then start to release more carbon, uh, more water vapor into the atmosphere of Mars. Water vapor itself is a greenhouse gas That will raise the temperature of Mars even more to create even more water vapor. And that gives you a runaway greenhouse effect for free if you can raise the temperature of Mars by 6 degrees. And a combination of methane gas and a combination of solar satellites beaming that energy down to the polar ice caps may give us that ability. Now, some people say, well, who would want to do that? Well, realize that already today... Scientists spend many months on the South Pole. Its conditions there below freezing are somewhat similar to the conditions found on Mars. And scientists willingly go to the polar ice caps. So we're saying that the first settlements on Mars are not going to be colonists. The first settlements on Mars will be scientists, like those that brave the Antarctic and live in a hostile environment for the sake of science. Eventually it becomes self-sufficient. At that point, it's no longer a drain on the planet Earth. It'll survive all by itself. And as I mentioned in my book, The Future of Humanity, by then artificial intelligence will be advanced enough to help to build many of these structures on Mars. So it's not such an arduous task. And again, no one is saying that we should deplete Earth, leave Earth to go to Mars and mess that planet up too. No one is saying that. We just want a settlement on Mars as a science project, at least initially, to see if it's even possible to begin the process of colonizing Mars. Now, there's also a very practical implication of this, and that is it could get out of control. Let's say, for example, that we try to control the drug trade. After decades of effort, we still have a very profitable, lucrative, thriving drug trade in illegal drugs. What happens when certain genes become illegal? Then perhaps we'll have an illegal market for genes. And how do you prevent that? Because, of course, a gene is nothing but information. You can send that as code. You can even uh, encrypt it so that it becomes impossible to decipher what this code is. And so there could be an illegal traffic in certain kinds of genes which are potentially dangerous. For example, let's say in the future, somebody finds a gene that can make children sit down, learn, become very patient, rather than become uh, rambunctious and overly aggressive. Well, parents may want that gene. It may become illegal because nations realize that they don't want a population that's docile. They want a certain amount of mix within their population. But this gene would guarantee that the next generation is very docile but learns very well and is very well behaved and has good manners. But not very imaginative, not innovative, and perhaps the innovative spirit could be dampened as a process. But let's say that gene gets out. Many parents may want it. And how do you stop? How do you stop a gene from circulating around the Internet? Because a gene is nothing but information. And information can be coded so you don't even know that you're dealing with illegal genes. And so there could be a thriving market in banned genes. And how do you stop it? So you can see that it's going to be very difficult to stop these things, especially because, well, Some people will want these genes. Now, other people say that we shouldn't overreact, that it's a good thing that we have germline gene therapy, because even though it's controversial, people may want it. For example, when Louise Brown was born several decades ago, the Catholic Church 
denounce that fact. You see, Louise Brown was the first test tube baby. And the Catholic Church says, in some sense, this is against natural law to have a test tube baby. But, but today, maybe your wife, maybe your husband, or maybe you are a test tube baby, and we just got used to it. In other words, some things which seem immoral to one generation may be actually valuable and commonplace to another generation. So my personal attitude is, let democracy prevail. Let the people decide how far they want to push this technology. In other words, some people are saying we should ban this technology entirely. Other people are saying, now wait a minute. Perhaps it's a good thing that we're banishing genes that are so dangerous they should not see the light of day. Genes which eventually make you crazy, make you mad, kill you. Why not ban those genes? Well, it's a moral question that has to be taken case by case. And as I mentioned, let democracy prevail. And the key to democracy is an educated public. The public has to know what all the pros and cons are once we have designer children, once we have cloning, and how dangerous some of these technologies may be or whether they're exaggerated. For example, the cloning controversy of the last decade, I think, was over-exaggerated. People thought that cloning was in some sense immoral. But if you think about it for a moment, twins are clones, and we live with twins with hardly batting an eyelash. And who's going to clone anyway? Who wants to have a genetic copy of you? Well, for the most part, maybe rich people. Rich people that have no heirs, or no heirs they particularly care for. Rich people will simply give their money to themselves as children, and they'll start over again, except this time they'll start off life as a millionaire. But that could have unintended consequences. Because if you give all your money to your clone, then your clone as an infant may not have the same ambition, the same drive that you had as a kid because you were deprived and you were poor. And therefore, for you, it was a goal to become rich. Well, as you can see, there are all sorts of ethical and moral questions, and we've just touched the surface. But the point is, the key is democracy. Only a democracy can decide how far they want to push this technology. And second of all, the key to democracy here is education. And that's why the more we talk about it, the better. Also in the news, the weather. It seems that the Trump administration got a recommendation from one of its own agencies recommending that we do something about global warming, which then the president disavowed. So we have this contradiction even within the presidency of the United States. Well, we can say one thing, and that is the United Nations came out with a report authored by about 90 scientists. It was peer-reviewed by 6,000 scientists. And it said not only that the Earth is heating up, which even the skeptics will now agree is happening, the Earth is heating up, but pinpointing human activity. Notice that we've had gigantic forest fires in California on a historic scale. Forest fires on a scale that we've never seen before. Now, I grew up in San Francisco, and I know that, yes, Californians are accustomed to forest fires, but these forest fires were off the chart. So we're talking about even Malibu, places where we have celebrities living. Even they did not have the protection against these mammoth forest fires. And then the question is, what was the role of global warming? Well, you see, global warming is not a smoking gun. You cannot pinpoint one particular uh, atmospheric anomaly and say, aha, that's the fingerprint of global warming. You see, global warming is an average effect. You have to look over the long term, and not just one, but many kinds of atmospheric disturbances. And then you see a pattern. And that pattern is driven, we think, in part by global warming. So no one is saying that any one particular drought, storm, flood, forest fire is caused by global warming. But when you look at the overall picture, you see this unmistakable pattern. Every indicator points up when it comes to global warming. 
Average temperatures around the earth are going up. Sea levels around the world are going up. Not only that, but we see every glacier on the planet Earth beginning to recede. We see cracks forming in Antarctica. We find that parts of northern Canada, Alaska, and Siberia are beginning to thaw out. In fact, several years ago, I spoke in Krasnorosk in Siberia, and the people there were actually rather grateful about global warming because, of course, it means that their town is thawing out. But it also meant that prehistoric animals, animals that were frozen solid in the Ice Age since about 40,000 years ago, are beginning to become uh, thawed out because the tundra is beginning to melt. So in other words, we're seeing temperatures that we haven't seen for 30, 40, 50,000 years as the tundra in Siberia begin to melt, and prehistoric animals like mammoths are beginning to be revealed as the ice begins to recede. So, in other words, on every indicator, on every scale, we see the fact that the earth is, in fact, heating up. You talk to any farmer, any farmer could tell you that summertime is about week, a week longer than normal on average, And remember that farmers have to know the weather because their livelihood depends on knowing exactly when the different seasons begin to transition to other seasons. And every farmer knows that, yes, winters are shorter and summers are longer than normal. And the scientific community is pretty much unanimously behind this verdict of the United Nations. But again, you cannot point to any one particular anomaly and say that's due to global warming. You have to look at the average effect, average over years, and then you see this unmistakable pattern that by 2040, we're talking about irreparable damage being inflicted on civilization because of the warming of the planet Earth. So a warning to the wise. We have to do something now because of the fact that in the coming decades, at some point, we may be hitting the point of no return. And remember, it's just not one point of no return. There are probably several points of no return, which gives us a little bit of wiggle room, but it does mean that we have to make changes. Now, that's on the bad, the depressing side of things. There are also some good news, and one of the good news is that battery prices have been dropping. One reason why we don't have the great solar revolution that many environmentalist prophesied about so many years ago is because of the cost of batteries, the cost of storage. But battery prices have been dropping by about 7% per year. Inventors now realize that by making a better battery, not only can they remove the bottleneck, the bottleneck in renewable energy, but they can also make money in the process. And so they're jumping in on the bandwagon. And as battery prices drop, It means you can have more and more adoption of solar panels and wind farms and renewable technology. So just remember that time is on solar's side. Now, the critics of solar energy have always said that it's only Hollywood movie stars that have the money and the luxury to put solar panels on their roof. But the economics are changing. Tax credits, but also not only the plunging price of solar cells, but the efficiency of batteries. That's been one of the major bottlenecks preventing uh, solar and wind power from taking off. But as battery prices drop, we'll see a point where it really pays to have batteries during time when the sun doesn't shine and the winds don't blow. Well, we only have a few minutes left in this segment of exploration in the first half of the program. And so I'd like to answer some email questions that I get. One email that I often get is from parents, parents who have young children, and they want to know what to do to help stimulate their interest in science. And I tell them that, well, under the age of 10, science is just nothing but one thing among other things that that they don't really understand that well. Everything revolves around mommy and daddy, after all. But after age 10, kids want to know what's beyond mommy and daddy. And that's when you want to hook them. 
that's when you want to buy them a telescope or a microscope, a chemistry kit, something that fascinates them, a book about the universe, for example, something that tells them that there's something beyond simply mommy and daddy. And that sets them off into this great journey, this great journey to find out, well, why does the universe look like it does? Why does the sun shine? Where do babies come from? What is the what is the ultimate goal of humanity as it explores outer space? These are the kinds of questions that young kids ask when they're very young. However, then they hit the danger years. They hit perhaps the greatest destroyer of young scientists known to science. I mean, after all, we're born scientists. We want to know what makes the sunshine, why the stars twinkle. We want to know where we come from. But this this flame of curiosity and innovation is extinguished when it comes up against the greatest destroyer of science known to scientists, and that is junior high school. That's right. When kids start to hit 14, 15 years of age, first of all, science becomes boring. It's nothing but memorization, facts and figures that seem to be totally irrelevant to their lives. And then peer pressure begins to kick in. You're considered weird if you're interested in science. And at that point, you begin to realize that there's social pressure being placed on you not to become a scientist. So I tell parents, first of all, that when their kids hit the age of 10, that's when they need a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of fascination, a visit to the planetarium, a telescope, a microscope, uh, something that, that begins to stimulate their interest in the greater world around them. And then, of course, when they hit the danger years, that's when we have to make sure that they have continual parental guidance and a role model. A role model is so important because, well, the wheel has already been invented. Why do we have to reinvent the wheel? So get your kids a book about some figure from science. Um, doesn't have to be Einstein. It could be any number of the great scientists of the past to show them that, yes, even poor little kids with no advantage when they were kids can become great scientists. It's just a question of curiosity, motivation, and interest. So you may want to get your kids interested by not just taking it in a planetarium, but by perhaps encouraging them to do a science project, by encouraging them to find a, a mentor, a role model out there that helped to guide their way. And so these are the basic ingredients. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion about ethics and morality in science by talking about the life of a great German who actually worked for the Nazis, even though he was Jewish. Dr. Heinz Haber, Nobel Prize winner, great scientist, but one day he found out that his discovery led to the gassing of his own relatives. And so once again, in the second half of exploration, we'll talk about morality in science, especially the, mora the moral dilemma faced by scientists who worked for the Nazis during World War II. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about the cutting edge of science, the fact that scientists are beginning to explore Mars in a new way. We're beginning to look at Mars' interior. 
what lies in the inside of the planet Mars that could help us one day in the future if we have a settlement on the red planet. But we're also continuing our series about ethics in science. What is the social responsibility of scientists to the inventions that they create? We have on one example, for example, uh, Werner von Braun, the great rocket scientist who helped to initiate the space age, who led the effort to put men successfully on the moon. Werner von Braun, hero of the space age, but we have to also point out in all fairness that he was a Nazi. He worked for the Nazi regime. He had mixed feelings about it, but nonetheless, he went along with it and helped to create the V-2 rocket, the rocket that terrorized London, which was built by slave labor. And so today, we're going to talk about the ethical implications of what scientists create, and are they responsible for the destruction that these weapons may unleash? And in the second part of exploration, we're going to bring on Daniel Charles, author of the book Mastermind, The Rise and Fall of Fritz Haber, the Nobel Laureate who launched the age of chemical warfare. So here is a man who changed the face of modern chemistry. For example, the Green Revolution, which greatly expanded the population of the Earth, is due to the work of Franz Haber. He showed that nitrogen in the air can be fixed and put into fertilizer. Believe it or not, the modern Green Revolution would be impossible without the work of Fritz Haber. However, he also worked for the Nazis, designing poison gas for the Nazis, which ironically were used to gas his own relatives. And so in this half of exploration, we're going to be talking about Fritz Haber, the Nobel laureate who launched the age of chemical warfare, but also helped to create the Green Revolution, which greatly expanded the population of humanity. Okay, let's talk about his childhood. Um, uh, every scientist, of course, goes through a process, usually as a youth, where they get fascinated by the laws of physics, chemistry, and stars. Uh, what was it about his youth that propelled him in that direction? Well, the, uh, um, he, there are stories of him concocting chemical experiments, you know, in his boyhood, uh, getting actually thrown out of the house for doing it, but then a, a friendly aunt gave him room, apparently, in her house to conduct these chemical experiments. Mm -hmm. So there was a personal interest, but also Fritz Haber was so much, almost eerily, a product of his time. Uh, and science in, in general, and chemistry in particular, was the field within which Germany was excelling at the time when he was growing up, the latter part of the 1800s. Um, it was something that Germany, it was an industry that Germany dominated. And, uh, and Haber, I think partly because he wanted, he had this sense of wanting to escape his, his town. He wanted to be important. He wanted to rise in society. He wanted to be successful. I think partly he latched onto the thing that seemed to be the path toward, toward success. And so he was very ambitious as a youth, right? But he grew up in a Jewish family. So could you explain uh, how his religious identity changed over the years? He did grow up Jewish. He grew up in a large Jewish clan in the city of Breslau. It's now Wrocław in Poland. Uh, he was part of that generation of German Jews who for the first time really could participate almost fully in German society. The legal restrictions had, to a large extent, been dropped. Professions were open to them that had never been open to their ancestors. And Fritz Haber just seized on these opportunities with all his might. Um, in his 20s, he converted to uh, Christianity. Um, and this was, to some extent, a rejection of his past, a rejection of his father. Uh, with whom he had many conflicts. But it was also a identification with this increasingly powerful incre uh, German state. He wanted to be, he said, much later in life, in trying to explain his decision to convert. He took it as a step toward being more fully German. And uh, what about comparing him a little bit to Einstein? Einstein also came out of that same social milieu, 
Uh, Jews, as you, as you uh, mentioned, were beginning to be more accepted in German society. Science was the big thing, uh, the meal ticket for a lot of young, ambitious uh, Jewish youth. Einstein was part of that whole movement, but then Einstein began to reject a lot of things associated with the Prussian tradition. But I guess Haber went the other way, right? Right. Einstein and Haber are interesting kind of counterexamples to each other. They were both German Jews, as you mentioned, but Haber rejected that Jewish identity in favor of the German identity. Einstein never liked Germany much. For whatever reason, Einstein just couldn't abide nationalisms of any sort, and particularly German nationalism. He actually renounced his German citizenship as a young man. Uh, so while Haber was renouncing his Jewish identity, Einstein was rejecting his German identity. He was never very religious, Einstein wasn't, but he, never, but he always felt almost compelled to stand you know, with what he called his tribe, uh, and that included um, identifying with and supporting uh, the Zionist movement and the establishment of, of the Jewish homeland in Israel. And in fact, Einstein renounced his citizenship as, as a teenager, which is something very rare uh, for most teenagers to become uh, uh, stateless. Yeah, unheard of, particularly at that place and that time. And the, the authorities didn't know what to do with him, basically. Right. Well, Einstein, of course, had a very checkered early career. He couldn't get a job. He worked in a patent office. We all hear about these stories of his early days. However, um, Haber was like a meteor in some sense. Could you now trace a little bit his scientific rise? He, he also struggled for a few years after university. He was kind of an outsider. He didn't kind of get on the fast track immediately. But once he did, at the university in Karlsruhe, he just worked tirelessly. He um, made himself an expert on uh, new fields, it seemed like, every year. And by happenstance, he, he, he got his, his hands on a particular scientific problem that had um, been the subject of much talk, this idea of how to capture nitrogen from the air and convert it into a chemical form that would be useful for fertilizer, the so-called nitrogen-fixing problem. And that's how he made his great fame and his fortune. Now, could you elaborate on that? You know, the average person, if you were to mention nitrogen fixing, their eyes sort of glaze over. Exactly. But this is absolutely essential for the prosperity of the human race. We have, uh, what, six and a half billion people on the planet Earth right now? We wouldn't have six and a half billion people on the planet Earth in some sense without the work of Fritz Haber. So explain to us how absolutely essential it is for our, our dinner table. Right. Well, okay, so here's an interesting fact. <laughs> uh, all protein contains nitrogen atoms. All DNA contains nitrogen atoms. Um, today, you know, you look at your dinner plate, you look at your own flesh, and roughly, let's say, half of the nitrogen atoms that are in that food, that are in your body, came from a factory. They came from an ammonia factory using the process, the chemical process that Haber uh, invented. Basically, nitrogen is the fuel that drives intensive agriculture. Wherever fields year after year produce plentiful harvests, farmers are pumping nitrogen into the soil and plants are bringing it back out. Uh, and a lot of that nitrogen ends up wasted, sort of flowing down streams and becoming pollution. But... Um, Around the turn of the century, around 1900, scientists began to glimpse the fact that the world had a limited supply of nitrogen for agriculture, and they wondered what would happen when the nitrate mines in Chile, which is what Europe was relying on for fertilizer, when they ran out. And so they said there's incredible amounts of nitrogen in the air in this form of what they call N2, these tightly bound double atoms of nitrogen. How can we convince those nitrogen atoms to, to, to break apart and link up, say, to hydrogen instead, forming um, NH3, ammonia, which then plants could use, because plants cannot use the nitrogen in the air for food. That was the essential problem, how to capture nitrogen, this limitless supply of nitrogen from the air converted into a form that could fuel world food production. 
Now, as I understand, some bacteria can actually take nitrogen from the air and make it into fertilizer, but that's very limited process. And so we had this bottleneck, uh, the human population. The human population could not grow beyond what we can feed them. And therefore, there was this bottleneck uh, with fertilizer that Haber solved by then taking nitrogen from the air, limitless nitrogen from the air, and making fertilizer out of it. This is right. staggering if you think about it, right? I mean, look right. around. The people you see, your friends, your neighbors, they wouldn't be here. In some sense, they wouldn't be here without Fritz Haber, right? That's right. Well, a lot of things wouldn't, would be different. Um, yeah, I mean, particularly in China uh, or, uh, or India or Indonesia, uh, parts of the world that are very heavily populated, that's where humanity would have run into the limits uh, first. North America, we would just eat less meat. <laughs> we could do it without the added nitrogen. Um, but, um, but, you know, many, the world would be different without that, that nitrogen uh, fixing, that nitrogen capturing process. The world probably wouldn't have run into those limits until, say, the 60s. They were glimpsed in Haber's time, but um, uh, they weren't really, you know, coming into play until 50 years after his, de after his life. Now, we always hear, hear the stories of struggling artists and uh, poverty-stricken intellectuals, but he was a man who had some financial savvy as well, and he became wealthy. Uh, could you elaborate? Well, Fritz Haber struck a deal with this industrial partner of his, the BASF company, which actually still exists. It, um, he said, um, you know, so we have this patent on this nitrogen-fixing uh, process, this ammonia synthesis. Um, for every unit of, uh, of, of ammonia that you make, uh, I, Fritz Haber, the inventor of this, will get a penny or two. And uh, that wouldn't have been so significant had not World War I came along, had not World War I come along. But at that point, the German military was cut off from its supply of nitrogen for explosives. And suddenly, Haber's nitrogen-fixing process becomes the key to keeping Germany in the war. And they built enormous factories and produced unbelievable quantities of ammonia. And Fritz Haber was getting money out of every, every kilogram of ammonia they produced. He became fabulously wealthy, uh, worth a millionaire many times over. So, in other words, on one hand, uh, he creates a nitrogen process which, in some sense, uh, changed the course of agriculture. And then that uh, same chemical genius uh, goes to uh, make uh, weapons of war at, and made him wealthy, right? It turns out, yeah, it turns out that the first really large-scale use of the nitrogen process was for warfare. And what about his Nobel Prize? It's an interesting story there. Immediately after the First World War, when Haber has really become infamous in parts of the world, uh, uh, the Swedish Academy of Sciences awards him the Nobel Prize for this ammonia synthesis. Um, there were great protests in France and uh, snide articles in the New York Times about it. But um, Fritz Haber took it as a, you know, a, a vindication uh, for German science. Okay, now let's talk about Fritz Haber, the man, his political views, his uh, social views. Uh, here was a man who became wealthy, in some sense, on weapons of war. However, he also opened up a whole new area of agriculture, which uh, is continuing to impact the human race even today. Uh, what was in his mind? Uh, what, was it, what was his thinking process? What made him tick? I think, first, there was ambition. Fritz Haber was a driven man, uh, he really wanted to be important, to be successful, uh, to make a contribution, to be well-known, to rise in society. He, that, he, was, he was somehow compelled to do that. And you can look for psychological explanations in his uh, escaping his Jewish identity as a, as a young man. Uh, he also was a creature of his times. He believed in technical progress. He believed in technology. Uh, and he believed also in his duty to the state. He was a patriot, not in the sense that he, as some Germans were, believe, uh, convinced that Germany was somehow superior culturally to other countries. Fritz Haber wasn't that kind of patriot, but he totally believed in his duty um, to Germany. The state's goals became his own, and when the country went to war, Fritz Haber 
jumped to the front line. And what about his fate between wars? Uh, many people, of course, lost fortunes. Uh, Germany was humiliated. Uh, reparations bled the economy. And in some sense, people think the seas of Nazism uh, rose between World War I and World War II. Uh, what happened to his fortunes? Well, Fritz Haber remained a prominent member of German society after the First World War. Uh, he led his institute in Berlin. He did lose a big chunk of his personal fortune, but uh, he retained some as well. So he, he really, for much of this time, uh, was pretty well off. Um, but he, you know, he, again, was tied to his country, and he was distressed by, you know, Germany's misfortunes. Uh, he saw the, the, the rising tide of anti-Semitism, um, and his health, also declined in this area. It's in this era. It's, um, it's it was a difficult time for Fritz Haber. Um, he he tried many things and had sort of the growing sense that uh, maybe things were not working out uh, all for the best. Okay, and how did what how did he view the gradual rise of Nazism? He died in 1934. However, 1933 is when Hitler rose to the chancellorship of Germany. So what happened now in the late 20s and especially the early 30s where you could see the rise of Nazism? Well, Haber was dead set against the Nazis, uh, partly because he was Jewish and the Nazis uh, were, he knew, his enemies. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, Haber was kind of on the right side during the, the 1920s. He was a Democrat. He participated in um, elections in a, in a political party that was generally uh, sort of middle-of-the-road, uh, pro-elections. Uh, he had friends among the socialists on, on the left as well. So uh, he was distressed by the rise of the, of the Nazis, and when they took power in 1933, he saw, in a sense, the writing on the wall. He realized very quickly that... By their definition, he was Jewish. He was not Christian. Um, and when they passed a law saying no Jews can be part of the civil service, Haber was in the position of having to dismiss many uh, members of his own institute. He himself didn't have to resign immediately because he was a World War I veteran, and there was an exemption for that. Um, but he um, did the honorable thing. He tried to protect the most vulnerable in his institute, found positions for them outside the country. Very quickly, though, he'd had enough, and he resigned in protest uh, in the spring of 1933. Spent the, the rest of that year wandering around Europe trying to find a new place for him to live, for himself to live. And what about his friends and associates? Uh, you mentioned in your book that his associate that helped to also produce that same nitrogen uh, process tried to help him. But there are limits to what you can do, especially with the rise of Nazism uh, dominating the entire German political scene. Uh, but were there any attempts to help him before he went into exile? Well, sure. Both Max Planck, the, the, the great physicist, and Karl Bosch, um, the industrialist, um, head of the biggest chemical uh, company in Germany, they both went actually to Hitler and and said, you know, you're hurting Germany by forcing these talented German scientists into exile. And in both cases, Hitler, you know, basically wanted nothing to do with, with this. Uh, he, um, according to one account, he said to Max Planck, you know, I'm finished with the Jew Haber. And uh, I read some accounts of that famous meeting between Max Planck, uh, the great founder of the quantum theory, and Adolf Hitler, and Adolf Hitler, at one point, uh, storms off into a tangent and screams and yells and says, I am not weak. I am not weak. Uh, people say that I am weak, but I am strong. Uh, and at the, after that meeting, uh, Planck said, uh, quote, uh, you cannot reason with men like that. Yeah, yeah. I understand that Max Planck just had decided he had to just leave. He just, he just had to leave the meeting. There was nothing to be said. Now, the tragedy is what became of his work, uh, especially on poisons, after he died, 
How did the Nazis exploit that technology that、uh, Fritz Haber unleashed on the world, especially chemical warfare? Well, we haven't talked too much about his work on chemical weapons. Haber really pioneered the use of poison gas on the battlefield. He drove that forward. He recruited troops. He was at the front lines. He orchestrated the first attack with poison gas in April of 1915. He also was very interested in the use of poison gas for the con- for the control of insects.、Um, he developed techniques for eradicating insects from granaries, from ships, from barracks where where troops、uh, were staying. And in his institute, they developed a particular insecticide. Uh, for that purpose, and they called it Zyklon.、Um, immediately after the war, they improved the formulation some、um, and called it Zyklon B. And in the 1920s, that、uh, insecticide was was sold across Europe for the control of insects. And after the Second World War started, long after Haber had died, the SS acquired large quantities of that insecticide.、Uh, they asked. The manufacturers of it to reformulate it somewhat, and they used that poison gas, the the, the product of Haber's Institute,、um, in the death camps to gas millions of human beings. And、uh, among just... those were some of Haber's distant relatives. And let's talk about that.、Uh, in some sense,、uh, what goes around comes around.、Uh, he unleashes chemical warfare on the battlefield. And then it goes all the way around, and then it's used to gas some of his relatives.、Uh, do you see some irony there? Ah, it's 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 almost it is macabre. It's、uh, this is one of the the things about his story、um, that makes it almost irresistible for a for a dramatist.、Um, people do things all the time, and it, they then their accomplishments have unintended consequences, but. Usually for other people, <laughs>、mm-hmm. it usually doesn't come back around to yourself.、Uh, but in Haber's case,、um, he was an instrument of German nationalism in the First World War. He fed the beast that ultimately turned on him and chased him out of Germany. He invented poison gas that was used to kill、uh, people to whom he was intimately connected.、Uh, it's it's a It's a strange, bizarre, and thought-provoking story. Okay, and also I understand his wife committed suicide,、uh, perhaps in the realization that、uh, her husband unleashed this monster on the world. But、uh, what are your thoughts? Well, Clara Immervar was her name, Haber's first wife. She was a chemist herself.、Uh, very unusual. She was the first woman. To receive a doctorate in chemistry from the university in Breslau, where she grew up, she'd been unhappy for years in the marriage.、Um, but in 1915, a week after the first gas attack, which Haber had organized, Haber came home on leave, and in those few days when he was home, in the middle of the night, Clara Immervar picked up his army-issued pistol, went down to the garden, and killed herself with it. Uh, she didn't leave a note, as far as we know. Other people afterward talked about how she was、um, opposed to her husband's work in war. For what you know, we can't know exactly what was going on in that marriage, but for many people, and I think it's a reasonable thought,、uh, her suicide stands as a kind of condemnation of Fritz Haber's of Fritz Haber's activities during World War One. Okay, now let's talk about the larger question of science, scientists, war, and social responsibility. On one hand, some people say that perhaps we're too harsh on Fritz Haber, because after all, he died before he realized that his work would be used to gas millions of Jews and communists and Russians and gypsies. But on the other hand, some people would say that he should have been hung as, as a war criminal. Uh, because he willingly unleashed this whole era of, of chemical warfare on the battlefield, so there's a spectrum. Some people say hang him. Other people say, well, look at the the social context that they were essentially puppets of governments who funded them.、Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I have a number of thoughts, and、uh, you know, it's interesting to examine the reactions of contemporaries.、Uh, there were 
there was a kind of brotherhood of gas warfare that emerged after World War I. Uh, there, some of the leading British figures, scientists in the British chemical war effort after World War I, became friends of Haber's, and they actually gave him uh, uh, comfort and uh, a place to land when he got chased out of Germany in 1933. Um, I, I sort of... in. The reason I wrote the book the way I did, and I think some would probably call it too sympathetic to Fritz Haber, is I think the spirit of Fritz Haber is still very much alive and generally accepted in our society. Uh, Fritz Haber was ambitious, so are many. Fritz Haber was a technocrat, so are many today. Fritz Haber wanted to solve problems. He wanted to help his country. He put his skills and gifts at the service of his nation in peacetime and in wartime, and I think that's what maybe most scientists do today. Now, you can argue, say, oh, well, chemical weapons was a horrible thing. Chemical warfare was simply, as Haber saw it, the cutting edge. It was the new technological frontier. Uh, Twenty years later, that technological frontier, well, 30 years later, the technological frontier was in the area of physics, not chemistry, and we saw the atom bomb. You know, another... Oh, 50 years, and the technological frontier today is probably, oh, I don't know, computer scientists and, and electrical engineering. But I think the, the, the spirit of what Fritz Haber did is not all that different from what we can witness today. Well, let's say a few things about Fritz Haber's uh, contemporary, uh, Werner Heisenberg. Uh, he, of course, is one of the founders of quantum mechanics. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle is named after him. Uh, the play Copenhagen uh, won the best play in London and New York concerning whether or not Heisenberg deliberately sabotaged Nazi effort to build the atomic bomb or whether he was an accomplice to Adolf Hitler's reach for nuclear energy. The play was rather sympathetic and simply said maybe he was just a nationalist and left open the possibility that he sabotaged Hitler's reach for the atomic bomb. But recently, a letter was released by the family of Niels Bohr, who was Heisenberg's mentor. And in that letter, uh, never mailed uh, from Niels Bohr to his student, uh, Heisenberg, it mentions the fact that you, the student, Heisenberg, wanted to recruit me, uh, Niels Bohr, one of the founders of atomic physics, to work on the Nazi atomic bomb because the Nazi victory was inevitable. And since the Nazis were going to triumph anyway, why not join the winning side? So here we have a supreme irony. Quantum mechanics, the theory that Heisenberg pioneered, is used every day in modern electronics, computers, lasers, the Internet, satellite communications. Modern society would collapse today without quantum mechanics. We use it in the transistor. We use it in the computers. However, let's be honest about this. Werner Heisenberg also worked on the German atomic bomb. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And join us every week as we discuss science and its impact on society. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, for a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Good day for exploration. Shine your shoes, slick your hair, come along with me. It's Mickey Mouse's birthday party, that's the place to be. Beloved cartoon rodent Mickey Mouse celebrated his 90th birthday this past November. This Christmas Day, animation historian Jerry Beck returns to KPFK's airwaves with Cartoons in Stereo, offering a selection of cartoon tunes that abetted the on-screen antics of Mickey and his colleagues and competitors from the days when animated cartoons were really animated. So tune in Tuesday, December 25th at 3 p.m. right here at 90.7. FM, KPFK Los Angeles, for a lively hour of Merry Melodies.
KPFK's end of the year giving campaign is wrapped up, but you can still make a pledge online to be eligible to win some amazing sweepstakes prizes. We're choosing two grand prize winners for a pair of tickets to see the Rolling Stones No Filter Tour at the Rose Bowl on Saturday, May 11th. These two winners are in the first five rows of the stadium. Plus, we're providing round-trip ground transportation to and from the concert courtesy of the Jackson Limousine Service for both of our grand prize winners. Our first prize winner also scores